Welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. Forensic analyses and valuation is the topic of this episode 12, and I can't think of anyone more knowledgeable on the subject than my guest, Jaime Dalmeida, a managing director at Duffin Phelps, whom I've had the pleasure of knowing for a number of years. Jaime is an accredited senior appraiser of the American Society of Appraisers, a certified fraud examiner. He has over 20 years experience in economic and valuation analysis and consulting, and he's testified as an expert on valuation and damages issues. Jaime also is a contributing author of the recently released treatise called Litigating the Business Divorce, published by Bloomberg BNA. As you'll hear in the interview, forensics and valuation is not, as some might think, all about uncovering financial skullduggery, although that may happen. As Jaime explains, forensic analysis and valuation is all about applying a scientific methodology to the subject company's data in order to test and adjust as warranted the company's financial statements upon which the valuation is based. In other words, the analysis and adjustments can be driven by benign owner conduct, such as taking too little compensation, as well as by less benign conduct, such as taking and not reporting cash income. And that's just a small taste of what you'll learn from my conversation with Jaime. I hope you enjoy the interview, and now I give you Jaime Delmeda. Jaime, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. We're going to be talking about forensic analyses in valuation, which is a topic I gather you know a heck of a lot about. We certainly do a lot of uh, forensic analyses uh, when we are valuing businesses. You're a managing director at Duff & Phelps in their disputes and investigations practice, correct? That's correct. What kind of uh, engagements do you typically do? I, I typically work in corporate finance-related engagements, uh, certainly valuation-related engagements, which would be probably the most pertinent for this conversation. I want to congratulate you, by the way, for your what looks like a major contribution to a wonderful new treatise that was recently published under the editorship of our friends in Wilmington, Kurt Heyman and Melissa Dominerski called Litigating the Business Divorce. As I understand it, you were a major contributor to the chapter on damages and valuation. Is that right? Uh, it was a big effort by everybody, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly had a, had a part in it. Yes, it was an impressive book. Yeah, it is a very impressive book. I blogged about it. I have reviewed your chapter on valuation, which is particularly interesting to me because I just love the topic of valuation. And I found that it was a really, really good overview, particularly for the uninitiated lawyer who is just you know, learning the ropes of valuation. I thought it was just a great, great overview of the basics uh, of what a lawyer needs to know and be at least, you know, begin understanding. We're going to be talking, as I said, about forensic analyses and valuation. And I think the word forensics means different things to different people in different contexts. I mean, I think to the casual uh, television watcher, probably they think of CSI when you hear the word forensics. Those in the corporate world, myself included, often associate the word with the accounting forensics. Tell us what your definition of forensics is from your perspective as, among other things, a business appraiser? So I, I do think that the word forensic is used by different people to mean different things. And it's important to me to know what who I'm talking to, how they define it, because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm addressing their, their concerns or their issues when they are asking for a forensic analysis, um, if they have any preconceived notion of what that means. I think that forensic accountant is a word that has uh, been used a lot, and that typically refers to 
investigations, uh, oftentimes with uh, issues of, of fraud being alleged, um, hit on historical statements, looking at restatement. I think for, for my practice, the term forensic to me means very similar to what you would you would see it if you opened up a dictionary, which is just using scientific and technical methods to investigate something. It means being careful and using methods to identify issues in a systematic and scientific approach. So for example, if I'm looking at uh, trying to find uh, a something that's a, a, an odd trend, I'm going to look at the trend over the past number of years, and you can see something that's different. So you can observe those kinds of things. To me, forensic analysis means, again, just being very scientific and careful about what you're doing. So it sounds like it, it is very much part of what a business appraiser does when they're looking at the financials of any company that they're valuing. I think you could apply the word forensic to any analysis that you're doing in business valuation, in my opinion. I think that uh, forensic really just means that, you're again, you're applying the right methods to do your valuation analysis, being thorough and being scientific about right. it. Forensics, uh, going back to my earlier point, it, you know, and the, and the connotation that you're uh, looking for evidence of bad acts or fraud or other misconduct, is that necessarily the case in forensics? Again, to me, the term forensic just means being thorough and scientific in your approach, which means you can apply that to somebody, to a bad actor or to a good actor. It doesn't necessarily mean one or the other, especially if you're making some normalization adjustments. It doesn't have to be always done by a bad actor. They could be good actor normalization adjustments as well, which you would reach from a forensic analysis. What would be an example of that? We haven't really talked about what we use historical information for, but in a business valuation, you want to understand what the company has done historically uh, so that you have some basis for thinking about what the company is going to do in the future. Not that it is going to repeat the past by any stretch, uh, but the past is something you should at least consider when you're identifying what the company can do going forward. So when you look at the historical financials, you want to make sure you're looking at it on a the, the, the items are all recurring items. So in other words, if you see something that happened two years ago where the company uh, received a very favorable litigation settlement and there is a, a big uh, income on the financial statement, so it showed a large, uh, a large earnings, if you will, you would want to adjust that out because that's not really representative of anything that's going to happen in the future, typically for a litigation settlement, unless the company is often litigating litigations and that's part of their business model. If it's a one-off litigation, then you don't want to take that in consideration when you're looking at the historicals. You want to look at them on a on what's it called a recurring basis, not the non-recurring basis. Are there circumstances where it is appropriate in the course of a business valuation to bring in, in addition to the business appraiser, a forensic accountant? I think if you asked a forensic accountant, they'd probably say yes. Um, in my opinion, business valuation is a financial analysis. Accounting is somewhat of a, of the language that we use for financial statements. You have to understand accounting so that you can read the financial statements. But investigating uh, and understanding issues with companies' finances, I think, can be done uh, certainly by an accountant, can be done by anybody that's trained and has that type of experience. You don't need to be an accountant to investigate a company's financials. You need to be an accountant and have a CPA to sign an audit. Those are two very different things. And in fact, 
some account, some accounts may not make very good investigators or forensic investigators for business valuation purposes. You have to know what's important for business valuation to, to perform a relevant investigation. So how would you define the, the ultimate goal of forensic analysis in evaluation? So forensic analysis, the goal of forensic analysis and evaluation, understand the information in the historical financials that can be used as a basis for future expectations for that business. What's important to understand is business valuation is all about the future. A business is only worth the cash that it can generate in the future. And so when you're trying to figure out, identify what's gonna happen in the future, you look to the past to give you some indication of what's happened. And then you think about those trends. Will those trends continue? Will those trends change? That's the whole purpose of a forensic investigation is to understand that past. Is the importance of that forensic investigation different depending on what valuation method the appraiser is going to use in valuing a company? That's a great question. Yes, the the there are typically three valuation approaches. There's an income approach where you forecast the cash that a company is going to generate over time and you discount that back to today. So that's putting together a detailed forecast of performance for the company from a financial perspective. The second approach is what we call a market approach where you're looking at other companies, but whether they're public companies or companies that were bought or sold, and you're looking at a comparative analysis, the value of that other company compared to its EBITDA, for example, or the value of that other company compared to its revenue, and using that comparison to infer a value for your subject company. In those situations, all that really matters is whether you have the comparative metric correct. So is EBITDA correct in that in that first example, or is the EBITDA of, of the company that you're valuing? Exactly, the company that you're valuing. You have to make sure that your calculation of EBITDA is accurate, uh, or that the sales number is accurate. So all the all there could be a host of lots of other issues, whether it's shareholder loans, whether it's things that happened three years ago versus one year ago. Because right? if you're using one year ago EBITDA, then what happened two years ago and three years ago don't may not may not really matter that much, depending on, on uh, somewhat on the accounting. I don't want to get um, too uh, in, in a deep there. Um, but yeah, so depending on the, on the, on the approach, um, they can impact sort of what you look at. I'll just mention the third approach, just so <laughs> listeners don't think I'm a missing approach, is the cost approach, which typically is not used for an ongoing, uh, ongoing business. For instance, a uh, real estate holding company. Holding company is a classic example of that. Any, any asset-based uh, business, I suppose. And, and is, is the implication that for those types of valuations, um, there's less emphasis on the forensic analysis? Because for businesses for, that... We're using the cost, cost uh, or net asset value approach. Not necessarily, because the cost approach will typically start with the balance sheet and then make adjustments to the balance sheet to fair value, for example. If there are planes and trains and automobiles on that balance sheet that shouldn't be on that balance sheet, then you would need to need to understand that. All right. So I, I think you very nicely debunked uh, any myth that people have that forensic analysis is only about ferreting out, you know, misconduct or fraud. We're going to get into, in a few minutes, we'll, we'll get into some of the discrete or specific areas that lend themselves to forensic investigation and analysis. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the role of the lawyer vis-a-vis -vis the business appraiser 
in the forensic analysis process and what degree of collaboration is necessary and, and what exactly does that collaboration look like? The discovery process is really the most important process that you have to collect information here. And so the attorney that you're working with can help uh, the process by ensuring that we ask the, the questions at the right time. The process is followed so that there's no issues in terms of getting information in time with enough time to do the analysis, depending whether you're in court uh, or whether it's before court. Ultimately, the most important way that an attorney works with me that I work with them is in the collection of information, the discovery process. So will you in that process, for instance, prepare a you know laundry list of the information that you as the business appraiser need to have the attorney ask of the other side, either informally if you're not in litigation or, or through the discovery request if you're in litigation? Exactly. We have, uh, I wouldn't say we have a standard template because I think you can have different questions for different situations. So first you get an understanding of the business, the situation, if there's allegations, um, any of those allegations are will help advise you what to ask for. But then you do put together a, a set of questions, information requests that you want. And there's, there's data to be collected, uh, actual documents that you're looking for. And there's also information that you're looking for. And so sometimes I, I'll, I'll even receive from the company a written response to my questions. So I will get documents and then written responses, or I'll get documents and I'll have an opportunity to interview management. So th th that's, that's how I would collect information. I've seen many instances in which in a litigation where there's evaluation proceeding lying ahead, attorneys not engaging the business appraiser either until very late in the discovery process or even sometimes after discovery has closed you know, in that period between the close of discovery and trial. Everything you've suggested so far indicates that the business appraiser slash you know, forensic analysis should be brought into the picture at a much, much earlier stage. I couldn't agree with you more. The reality is there are pressures that attorneys have, client pressures, fee pressures. Those are just the reality, realities of working in this space. And so recognizing that I, when, I'm get, when I'm brought in early on, it ends up being a much better process we get a, usually get a much better result in the end, but that's not all. You don't always get that, you know. And so you work with what you have. You work with what you have. And so if you're if you're left towards the end, it does happen, and it's not a great. It's 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 not ideal. That's for sure. Uh, for attorneys, maintaining uh, privilege is is a very important factor in any litigation, including in a, a business divorce where you have a valuation in the offing. When you are brought in at a very early stage. If there is a typical, I don't know. Are you typically being engaged at that point as the trial expert, which for lawyers means that you're not really going to have that privilege cloak to protect the communications between the lawyer and the business appraisers? Or are you initially brought in as purely as a consultant who may or may not later convert to a trial expert? Does that make sense? It does. And I've been in both situations. You know, it depends on the attorney, I, I think, it's, and sort of what they, how they view the defensibility of the privilege from a consultant that becomes an expert testifier. I have certainly been hired as a consultant and stayed as a consultant. I've been hired as a consultant and then became a testifier later. And I've been hired directly as a testifier. Even if you're hired as a consultant, you need to be very careful. I usually take the approach that even if I'm as hired as a consultant, 
classic uh, thought process is if you wrote this and it appeared on the front of the Wall Street Journal, how would you feel? Or think about that, of some, you know, an email you send or something like that. So I'm usually very careful and my team is always very careful because this issue of what's discoverable and what's not and, and, and privilege, when you're an expert, you don't, you don't have as much of that. Uh, and so if you're a consultant and you know that you might become an expert, you can fall into a false sense of comfort if valuations that, you're, that you perform never get reviewed by anybody or never get contested. And then all of a sudden, one of your valuations is, con- well, I should say, you get a false sense of, of security, and then you start to relax a little bit in some of your processes and procedures and assumptions. Unfortunately, I've seen it happen a number of times where somebody who typically does not have to, their valuations don't go to any type of litigation or con- contested situation, all of a sudden one gets contested or becomes part of litigation, and someone has based some decision on that value or some important transaction on that value, and that person person can't support what they did because they're not in their mind they're not thinking what happens if this goes to litigation and so it's it's um it's difficult because i, I am, i'm also uh, really primarily litigation that's all i get involved in uh, probably 90 percent of what i do is litigation i still do some work outside litigation just because i think it's also important to continue that practice um, i'm not just i'm not always just a hired gun if you will but uh, there are a lot of folks out there who do a lot mostly just non-litigation work. And so when they start getting involved in litigation or one of their evaluations becomes uh, the subject of litigation, it can really be a a trying time for the client. Sean, you've represented control and non-control owners in you know, business divorce or evaluation cases, correct? Yes, I definitely work. At least with respect to forensics um, or the forensic approach, how does it differ when you're representing one, a control versus non-control side? And, and, and I'm, by the way, when I'm asking that question, I'm equating control with the party that is ultimately or is the buyer is buying out the non-control interest. Ultimately, you're after the same answer. So from a an end game, you're trying to get to the same end game. You're trying to figure out, again, from the historical financials, what is relevant here? What's appropriate to use uh, as a basis for making any sort of forward-looking forecasts? Um, So from that perspective, I think it's exactly the same whether you're working one side or the other. Practically speaking, it usually means some access to to management, uh, more access to management, to ask questions that the other side or the other ex- the other other uh, shareholder doesn't usually have that same, their expert wouldn't have that same access to discuss with management. For that reason, I think a good practice is that both experts should get exactly the same information. Both experts should share any information that they receive from their clients with the other side. At the end of the day, the, any any appraiser wants to get as much information as possible and, and let the appraiser decide what information is relevant. And as a litigator, I know that representing the non-control, you know, outside owner, it can be a real struggle to get information through the litigation process. There's always an, you know, an inherent pushback on virtually every request for information. But isn't it also true that to the extent that you're representing the control side and a buyout, whatever information you're going to rely on ultimately has to be disclosed at some point to the other side. They're going to have to have access to the information that you relied on. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So whether it's provided before the report is prepared, you would, if I relied on it in the report, then it would be cited and the document would be, would be shared with the other side. So let's talk about 
the investigation phase of a forensic analysis in connection with a business valuation. You told us that you're going to provide the attorney with a list of some sort of the information that you require. And let's assume that we're talking about a relatively modest-sized company that has never had audited financials. Let's assume that they have an outside accountant who's simply preparing their tax returns. They're not coming in on a regular basis to do, you know, interim financial reports or anything like that. So a typical modest size, closely held business that is now the subject of your valuation assignment. If you're representing the minority, non-control side, what are the documents that you're going to ask the attorney to get a hold of? There are typically three types of financial statements. There are audited financials, there are compiled financials, and there are reviewed financials. And so if you're talking about a situation where you have only have reviewed financials, for example, which is no form of security from, from the accountant reviewing it. And in fact, you could have someone within the firm do reviewed financials, an accountant within the firm. Um, in those situations, it's a really good idea to take a look at the, the tax returns. That's really the only document now that, that's, uh, that's um, filed with a, a regulatory body. Um, so I would start with, with the tax returns for sure. And then you could ask for things like the general ledger, depending on whether you have any concerns uh, with the reported financials. You could ask for documentation supporting certain things in the financials, whether you think that they're understating revenue or overstating expenses, um, if you think that's part of the situation. Certainly, you want to understand whether there's any expenses, uh, especially if it's a closely held you know, private company, where there's any expenses that are personal in nature. If you believe management is being forthright, uh, then you take them on their word as to identifying those expenses. Uh, if there's any concern that that uh, you want to look at them yourselves, you could ask for credit card receipts or credit card statements, I should say, to help identify some of those expenses. You also want to look at trends. That's a really great way to identify potential issues. Um, if you see uh, in one particular year, there's a big increase in expenses or a big decrease in expenses, or the fixed asset uh, register is uh, significantly higher. Uh, if you look at fixed assets compared to, compared to revenue, so how much how many assets they have as a percentage of their revenue, if that's much higher than other similar companies in the industry, well, then that begs the question, what's in that fixed asset registry? Is there a plane in there, which you can certainly, I've seen those in the past. You want to ask for the, the, the tax statements, and then you want to ask for any detail around areas that you think there might be concerns with. So you're going to ask for tax returns, financial statements, whatever they are, the general ledger, maybe some credit card statements. Maybe some credit card statements. Uh, you might ask for uh, bank statements, certainly. I, I suppose there's there's almost no limit to how deep you can dig depending on what the issue is and, and how financially important it might be, or even if it's not terribly financially important, whether the lawyer thinks it's going to score big points in a litigation by way of discrediting someone. For instance, what's an example? You know, getting a hold of uh, a management, an officer's you know, easy pass records to show that they're, you know, traveling on weekends to the ball game using the company easy pass. I mean, that's just one perhaps silly example, but I, I suppose the forensic analysis path can take you that far down and even further sometimes, yes? Yeah, but when you say there's no limit, I mean, the limit is really what information is available and what's made available to you uh, or what the other side will provide mm -hmm. to you, right? They'll put up roadblocks, for example. One of the most difficult 
scenarios that I've dealt with in, in my cases has been where you have, you know, a cash business or a business where a significant part of its income, a retail business, for instance, where there's a lot of cash coming in and allegations that the cash is not being uh, recorded, it's not being properly accounted. Uh, maybe management is saying, well, yes, we do take in cash and we don't record it, but at the same time, we're using that cash to pay certain vendors or to pay certain employees off the books. So in other words, they're saying that there were, albeit not properly accounted for, there were legitimate you know, business uh, expenses to which this cash was applied. From a record, from an investigative standpoint, if you're not on the control side, so you're, you're you know, representing a non-control interest in, a, in an evaluation, how do you approach that from an from a information gathering standpoint? One of the most important issues is the process by which that company receives its sales, um, keeps track of its sales, the systems it uses to manage uh, in, uh, manage payments, supplies, expenses. If that process is broken or has areas of concern, then that raises the possibility that there is something going on here that so that the financials are not really representative of the financial performance of the business. And so if there's any sense that there is something wrong with the depicted performance of the business, you have to dig into it and understand uh, what exactly the performance is. You can ask for information related to receipts. You can, you can ask for information related to all the expenditures to see whether they're adding up to what's being depicted. I think an appropriate way to think about it is to, in these situations oftentimes, is to trust but verify. Reminds me of an example of a colleague of mine where he was looking at a clothing company. I think they made dresses and, and coats and suits. And the inventory had a very large shrinkage associated with it. So they were basically a lot of inventory was being written off more than typical. And so when we when he looked into it, ultimately took a long time. But ultimately, what was happening was they were taking a bunch of inventory at the end of the call, end of a Friday, opening the back door and selling it to somebody, putting it in a truck and selling it for cash. And the owners are taking the, taking the cash home. So I mean, that's I guess that's why you can go down to you know some of these areas in New York and find some really cheap suits. Um, but that's an example of you know, looking at the financials and seeing on the inventory something that makes you wonder what's going on. And you look into it and it, there's an explanation for it. We talked a bit about how you go about a forensic analysis where you have a cash business, talked about examination of financials, tax returns, etc., general ledger. What are some of the other key areas of investigation, and, and, and I, I know I'll, I'll start with one of them because uh, it comes up so often in my cases, and that is related party transactions. Tell us a little bit about how that factors into the forensic analysis. Yeah, it's a great example. So there's good actors and bad actors, um, and it, it, it can happen in both scenarios. By the way, I'm sorry to interrupt. For those who may not understand, what is a related party transaction in this context? So a related party transaction would be any transaction with another party that has some connection to the current ownership structure, or it could even be potentially the management structure, but there is some relationship between that other party 
and somebody associated with the subject company. Right. And, and, and one of the related party situations that I encounter most frequently is where one of the owners of the operating business happens to own the real estate within which the business is operating. So you have a landlord-tenant relationship where one of the owners of the operating business is the landlord. So you may not necessarily have an arm's length negotiated lease between the operating company and the real estate holding company, right? Correct. Is that something that a business appraiser is going to analyze or are they going to have to bring in a real estate appraiser as well now to come up with a market uh, rent? The situation would be where a operating company, let's say, has make let's simplify, an operating company has two owners and it's leasing the space where it, where it um, conducts its business from one of the owners and that uh, that rent is could be above market or below market. It doesn't always have to, always have to be in one direction. But as a business uh, appraiser, you want to make sure that if you're valuing the operating business, what would the business have to pay if it were to rent that space? You could certainly bring in uh, a real estate appraiser to help you identify market rents. But it's I think looking at market rents is something that a, that a business evaluation appraiser could also look at as well. Perhaps the number one issue, uh, as I think of it, that I encounter in this milieu is the issue of officer comp, or owner-officer comp, uh, either allegations or contentions that the officers are, have taken excessive compensation or perhaps in some instances have undercompensated themselves. Yeah, it is a situation where it, it could be either over or undercompensated, but you're trying to normalize compensation in these situations to value the operating business. Uh, well, a classic uh, situation is where the owner will take, can take out money through compensation rather than through a dividend. And so that's why they might be overcompensated. For and that may be motivated by uh, tax considerations? Tax considerations, exactly. Whether it's a C or an S corp? So if it's a C corp, certainly. If it's an S corp, there's less of a concern because it's, it's just a pass-through uh, to the owners. There are businesses out there that you can subscribe to and that you can pay pay to, and they will give you information on similar salaries for different positions. So you can do a, a market check on the comp levels. And if, it, if it's a really big issue, there are experts in compensation that you can engage to help you pr even provide an opinion on whether that comp was reasonable or not, or should have been higher or lower. So you have a, a buyout proceeding. The minority owner who's being bought out alleges that the controlling owner manager has been taking excessive compensation. The, comp the excessive compensation has been in the form of excessive salary, excessive bonus, uh, running personal expenses through the company credit card, paying, uh, bringing in a, a child or other you know, family member and overpaying them for their position. Paying for tuition, for example. Uh, well, that, things like that as well. And, and, and many, many other examples of ways in which, you know, non-salary compensation or uh, remuneration can be pocketed by a owner manager. Your assignment now is to figure out what exactly has this officer been taking in whichever form. How do you do it? You have to get into the details. That's the only way that you can do it. And now you're talking about uh, really more about damages. You're talking about issues with what the majority shareholder, probably controlling shareholder, has done uh, historically. You need to rectify that situation. For that situation, you, you 
absolutely have to dig into the details. You have to go through the credit card statements. You have to go through receipts potentially. You have to um, go through exactly what was received, what kind of remuneration was received. Question everything at that point. Right? And it's not just damages, is it? Because um, wouldn't that also play into the normalization of the financial statements for valuation purposes under under an income approach, for instance? It would, but for, from a going forward perspective, you have a number of sources to, ident- to help you identify what is an appropriate level of margin to assume. And so you would look to other companies, for example, if the historical financials are so much in disarray and there is no basis on which to rely on for them, then you start to look at what is an appropriate margin for this company going forward, an appropriate growth rate for this company going forward. So it's not always the case that uh, that you can sort of adjust everything historically peachy keen and, and, and just use that. Um, what's, again, valuations forward looking, so you're trying to identify what can this company generate going forward. John, in, in the fair value cases, which is really what I deal with, where you have a statutorily fixed valuation date, the forensic analysis, I assume, sort of cuts off as of the valuation date. But aren't there other situations where the valuation date may be somewhat more flexible? It may even post-date a trigger event such as a shareholder employee who's been terminated and is now required to redeem their shares based on evaluation of the company. So you have this interim period potentially where an owner can, through his or her management decisions, affect the value uh, of the company to be potentially litigated down the road. Yeah, I mean, typically when you're doing a, a valuation case in one of these situations, the company doesn't know that there was a valuation date until they receive some type of filing. Um, so they can't alter the historicals. But in, a, in the type of situation you're describing, which I, I certainly have seen, there's a triggering event, for example, where uh, you mentioned an employee. An employee maybe has a shareholder agreement, a buy-sell agreement, uh, or a shareholder agreement with, with the, some stock he or she owns. And when that employee leaves, it triggers the company has to buy those shares back from that person, for example. And maybe that valuation doesn't happen until the end of the year. So, for instance, the shareholders' agreement could specify that the valuation date shall be at the end of the next fiscal year, something like that. Exactly. And maybe they do that because they have a valuation done every year. Maybe maybe they have a valuation done for purposes of exactly this, to to buy employees out or to issue new shares to employees. You know, they do it at the end of every year. So the agreement just said, you know, if, if you leave during the middle of the year, then we'll buy you out of whatever the valuation is at the end of the year. Well, that opens up an opportunity for the company to sandbag the results of the business during that year. What would be some of the ways you, they could accomplish that? Yeah, so you could, with the, uh, with the compensation, you could accelerate comp during a particular year. Uh, not You could spend more lavishly on expenses. You could have a huge, really blowout Christmas party. There's lots of ways to spend money on employees that could easily suppress the earnings of the business in a particular year, where it's it's the kind of expense where you, you don't have to have it the next year. So the ways you would do that is, is, you know, from the time that you find out, the company would do this, from the time they find out that there's a triggering event through the end of the year, they could spend more money than they otherwise need to. Spend it on employees, spend it on things that they otherwise typically would not spend it on. But they would do that to try and show that the company was not making as much money and that therefore going forward, the company would not make as much money going forward 
and therefore the value of the business was less. I imagine, though, a, for a good forensic analyst like yourself is is going to be able to spot those uh, accelerated expenses and unusual patterns of, of spending, yes? Well, that's why you look at the trends. That's exactly why you look at, at multiple years of information, look at detailed categories of expenses, not just one or two categories, but more than more than one or two categories. So you can you can identify trends in, in, in multiple categories. And then you have to ask the questions to management. Why is this? Why did this go up so much? Right. What were you spending your money on um, in that particular year? I'll say one other thing. In those situations where an employee leaves, you have an invaluable asset in that employee because they know about that business more, much more than I would know about that business not having worked there. So, you know, there are situations where you have a minority shareholder who is a silent owner, doesn't know much about the business, maybe gets some information you know, once or twice a year. Different situation when you have an employee who is an owner who has a triggering event and needs their stock value. It's very interesting. Shaim, on that note, I want to thank you for speaking with us today about forensic analysis and valuation, and I hope we have the opportunity to speak again. I appreciate the time very much. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you found it interesting, and if you did, and if you haven't already done so, I encourage you to listen to previous episodes featuring some very smart and articulate guests on valuation and other business divorce topics. Speaking of which, there's no better way to stay current with developments in the business divorce field than reading my New York business divorce blog, where I publish a new article every Monday morning. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable.